Welcome to Pod Aloha, dedicated to preserving the heritage of surfing and the spirit of aloha. I'm Paul Strau, and I'm going to take you inside the stories of surfing's biggest influencers. And I'm Kieran McGuire. Welcome to the first episode of Pod Aloha, talk story with surf legends. My father-in-law is Paul Strau Jr. Renowned as one of the most stylish surfers of his generation, he is perhaps best known for developing the Strau 5, or Cheater 5 as it's often known. Winner of major surf competitions of his era, he's been inducted into the Huntington Beach Walk of Fame and the Hawaii Waterman Hall of Fame. He is a living connection to the towering legacy and aloha spirit of Duke Kahanamoku, who had a profound influence on Paul while he was a member of the Duke surf team. Inspired by all of the history I've learned from Paul and a desire to preserve and share it, Pataloha is going to take you on a journey exploring the evolution of modern wave riding in the voices of the pioneers who laid the blueprint. As our first guest, we're stoked and honored to welcome Jerry Lopez, Mr. Pipeline himself. Paul and Jerry have a special relationship, and Jerry has often talked about Paul's style being a major influence on his own. Jerry's grace and cool riding, which generally viewed as the most dangerous wave on earth, made him one of the most influential and revered surfers of the 20th century. Okay, aloha. Hi, Paul. Aloha to you, Kiernan. We have a very special guest today. Yes, we do. A dear friend of mine, who I haven't seen recently for quite a while, but uh, it's a pleasure to be in his company again. Jerry Lopez. Welcome. Aloha, Jerry. Nice to be here, always. Any opportunity to see Paul. Well, it's funny, as we were driving down here, Paul said that he wanted to thank you for popularizing Pipeline. Paul, do you want to say why? Yeah. Um, Especially surfing on the North Shore, you come to um, a real fondness for places that you really have an attachment connection with. And after Haleiwa, Sunset Beach became my uh, home ground. And I was so appreciative of Jerry for taking all the people who would come out to the North Shore and stopping them at Pipeline, and they wouldn't continue the ride to Sunset Beach. And uh, saved me. You really did. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, back then. You were hoping somebody would come out most of the time because it was pretty empty. I know. You know, especially if you compare it to what it's like today. I mean, surfing has grown so much just in that short time from the early 1970s, which isn't that long ago. But, you know, when you think about those many days that you probably had even before that as well, Mm -hmm. at sunset where there might have been one other car in the parking lot or maybe just a couple yeah and even on a good day there there wouldn't be so many people i know that's so true i remember being out there uh, surfing at sunset you know really with just a handful of people and then of course you know there were no leashes you just did it the old-fashioned way if you got caught inside or paddling out or lose your board you know you got to swim all the way in and long swim across two reefs and you finally get up on the beach and you know it's gone and you th- your heart sinks and say someone stole it oh my god and then, and then you see you, it out in the channel you see it going out the channel about a quarter mile out and you go <laughs> nothing else to do but jump in the water and let the current take you up part of the way but you had to swim and i miss those days you know yeah i really feel they should uh, go back to the old days and uh, outlaw leashes. No leashes, huh? No leashes allowed. And <laughs> that way, I think it would provide a a cleansing, you know, and people would be more respectful about, you know, holding on to their boards and not taking so many chances. Yeah, I think it, uh, when the leash came, it really took something away from, you know, what a surfer had to have um, as part of his 
quiver more or less i mean especially if you wanted to surf sunset because you, that was a long swim if you lost your oh board my God, yes and you know that having that situational awareness where the whole time you're swimming in you're trying to spot your board is it on the beach is it going off the rip i remember one time butch came out and he had a red board and i had a red board and we both lost our boards and we were swimming in and i saw a red board on the beach and i angled back towards the point and he kind of swam a little bit more into the channel and then he came in you know way down the beach and i came in and i saw it was his board on the beach but he was pretty far down so i ran down there to him you know and, mm -hmm. and he looks out and he goes oh there's my board and i go butch no your board's on the beach and he dove in and he swam all the way out you know way out there uh -huh. and just when he got to the board and i knew it was my board a wave came in there and washed it all the way in you're kidding so i ran back and got his board and dragged it down there and i got my board when it came in there I was waiting when he swam in. It was like half an hour later, you know, and I felt really bad. I thought he was going to be angry. And uh, he came in and he goes, well, that was invigorating. And I go, you know, that was your board on the beach. You swam all the way out there for mine, and then you had to swim all the way back in again. You had to swim twice. And he goes, ah, that's part of surfing. <laughs> I just, I never forgot that. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. But I also remember, you know, those early days and you know where both of you and Randy came from you know and um, and all those days on surfing Ainaina reefs which were secondary locations to Waikiki, Ala Moana and yeah. number threes particularly for me and uh, but man it sure was good you know but you had to work you know to get out to especially to toes. It's a long uh, paddle. Yeah but the reef too you had to you know it's so <laughs> shallow you got to watch your fins from coming off and uh, I mean the whole experience was just so memorable uh, we're really lucky you know it was a, a really magic time uh, it's a great time to grow up in Hawaii yeah sure too was. I mean you know even like before statehood you were always older than us and you know we always looked up to you and you know idolized you and nah. wanted to be like you um, but you know in a way it seemed to us that that you had it way better than us because <laughs> surfing was really small and you know you were already established and and um you know were a great surfer when we were pretty much just young up-and-coming guys and uh you got to you know the times you got to spend with the duke and and yeah those are special days you know that you know was just really extra special in our eyes that um so you were our hero but you know you bring up duke and you know i don't know did you have a chance to get to know him at all not like you but i mean yeah. i've met him on several occasions and you know got to be in his presence and just being near him um you know he had such an aura that um i think it was everybody could feel it and I certainly did I mean he was a very special person yeah yeah that persona you know he really uh, the epitome of aloha and when at it 
because of that opportunity to travel with him, I got to, because I was, I'm a half Hawaiian, and so I could understand Hawaiian. And he talked to me in Hawaiian a lot, too. And um, he'd have me sit, you know, to his side, especially when we went out to dinners. He says, Paul, sit by me, okay? I said, no problem, dude. Why, though? He says, because all these guys are like, ask me questions, you know? And sometimes, uh, a lot of them the same questions, but sometimes my hearing, I cannot hear them. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to ask them. So just remind me what they said. <laughs> and so we had this little thing, it tapped me on the leg, and I knew that was my cue to rephrase the question to Duke. You know, remember when, you know? But I'll never forget, we we're, were doing some autograph signing, you know, somewhere, and this guy comes out of the crowd and he says, hey, Duke. Remember me? I met you in 1932. You remember me? And he says, it's so good to see you again. You know, the guy's face just opened up wide with a big smile. But he had that way. He was really a, a special guy. You know, you knew how to bring people in and welcome them. And I'll never Make forget. them feel good. Yeah. And that yeah. was what Aloha is all about, you know. That's really special. Yeah. And, uh, he shared that so freely with, with everyone. Yeah, he was such a great role model. You know, he was 53 years old when I was born, so there was a huge age difference. And oh, wow. A lot of people think, wow, you knew Duke, you grew up with him. I said, I'm not that old, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to keep correcting that. I said, no, he was a very senior to me, you know. Um, he was born, I think, in 1900, you know, and... And so when I knew him, he was quite old, you know. And uh, but he's never lost that aloha spirit, and he's always embodied that. And I, to me, it's something that I mean, my dad was like that too. So I mean, I had some real special role models to uh, come to, into understanding how they they appreciated uh, life and how they treated each other, and so. Um, it's always been a guidepost for me, you know, to go through life in their image, try to do as much as possible. Yeah, and I mean, because of that, you know, and of course what you say is we really have to keep the memory of Duke alive for all the, the young people who, you know, have just heard about him mm -hmm. from us or, you know, mm -hmm. just, you know, as a story that it was a real person that, that um, I mean, you know, he was a saint, really. Yeah, he was. He was um, a very enlightened person. I think about, you know, a lot of the stories I've heard about you being with the Duke, and, and uh, they always brought a big smile to my face. Yeah, me too. Is there one in particular you can share, Jerry, about a story that you remember hearing about Paul and Duke that you like so much? Well... I mean, just, you know, the stories that we used to hear about because there was the Duke Hanamoku surf team. And, you know, Jeff Hackman was our age and he was very young. He was on the team, but it was you and Fred and Butch and Joey, yes, I think. Right. And um, Kimo McVeigh really did a, a beautiful job of publicizing that and the whole, all the pictures and, and, you know the publicity around that was so special mm -hmm. but it really seemed like Paul you were the one that had the most opportunities to to be with him and 
So I, you know, always just remember those beautiful pictures of of the Duke, you know, in his white suit and you guys in your Aloha shirts. And um. I'll tell you a quick story. We Kimo McVeigh took us to Las Vegas, Freddie and myself and Duke, and we sat front row to watch Sammy Davis Jr. You know, and we're about as far away as you and I are, you know, to the stage, and he was performing for an hour. And so the show was over, everybody walked out, and um, and Kimo left and comes running back and he says, I got great news, Duke, Paul, Freddie, listen, we've been invited backstage to Sammy Davis' uh, dressing room, so let's go. Don't you want to see him? And Duke looked at him and says, I just, he was right in front of me for over an hour, you know, I already saw him. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to sleep, you know. So, <laughs> so we took him to this hotel room. He went to sleep. That's so uh, Hawaiian style. I love that though, yeah. <laughs> i seen him already. Exactly. <laughs> Priceless. Can you guys, I know uh, an influence on both of you was George Downing. Can you guys talk a little bit of story about the influence that he had on both of you and, and as you came up surfing? Yeah, I, I could start off, and I can yeah. let uh, Jerry add his comments too. But yes, um, George is very influential to me. He was like the older brother I never had, and um, and I don't know how we actually connected, other than you know spending time. I mean, again, my dad was with the Waikiki Surf Club, and so I ended up paddling canoes down on Waikiki Beach and for the club in in uh, age group events and. Um, and got to know the Beach Boys there, and George was always on the beach in Waikiki, and and through you know relationship with my father who knew George, you know I became acquainted with him and became friends, and and then gradually that developed into a real friendship, and and then I learned so much from George. Uh, following, I had the luxury of uh, my dad knew Tom Blake, who stayed in my um, aunt's my dad's sister's uh, apartment complex in Waikiki. And so Tom was a shaper, and he made a board for me when I was 13, a balsa board, and I had the luxury of going down with Tom to McWayne Marine Supply, looking at all the wood, and I was asking all these questions, what are we doing, what, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm picking out the best wood that they have here, and you have to really be careful because my objective is to get the lightest piece of wood that's not twisted because you have to really work so hard to get that twist out. And it warps, you know, when they're sitting on the rack here. So that's what I'm doing. And so we, one by one, he selected these pieces. Tom made um, two boards, one for my father and one for me. And he made a square tail after gluing it all up and then scarfing the, you know, one section of about three and a half feet and the, on one end of these uh, long pieces of wood and then gluing it to the deck, uh, to the top piece, and so that formed a natural scoop. And that's what, how he created the lift and the bow lift and the both boards. But I remember him cutting out the, uh, I was sitting in the back you know, stairs, and he was doing the uh, shaping in the, our second garage that we had. And I watched him do, go through all this process and so he, he says, what, you know, you've been sitting there a long time, what, you must have some questions, you know, do you have anything you want to ask me? I said, okay, you told me that when I'm, when I'm talking with you that the fastest turning board is a pintail. 
And I said, why? And he says, because all you have to do is, if you're on a wave and you have movement and you just step back and lean to one side, put your weight back, that it's gonna roll over. And then you have, as long as you can level it off and the push of the wave is gonna keep you going forward, you're gonna be able to turn that. And that's why that's the fastest turning board. So, so now you shaped a square tail for my father's board and then what do you call what you made for me? Because you chopped it out. It looks like you have two pin tails. You made a swallow tail. Oh. And, I, and, and I, he says, oh, the reason is because you're still only 13 years old. You don't have much weight. So I made this board so that big enough, it's at 8.6, you can grow into it. You probably could use it for another five, six years. So uh, when the, 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 the swallow tail allows you the same effect as a pin tail. You have two pin tails there. So it's wider, we can shorten the, the, the length and provide you the base so when you step back and you put your weight on the other side, that one pin on that right side or the left, wherever you're stepping back to, will allow the board to come around real quick. And so all of a sudden it was my introduction to hydrodynamic theory and understanding, and I asked them a lot of other questions, why is it flat in the back and then curved up, you know, with lift on the rails in the nose and all those things so and George carried that on you know becoming my mentor and understanding you know for George he says it's objective when he made several boards for me he says uh, I said don't you want it really hard on the back you know the rails so that you can go fast isn't that the objective he says no it's not speed is not what we want I mean I we already know how to go fast what we want is control and so, how do you get that? He says, well, you don't make it that hard. But, you know, the lifting the tail is really key. You know, by putting a tail lift, rocker was what we call it overall. And I said, so you just lift it? How do you know? He said, no, there's planing surfaces. Like in the tail section, I try to get at least three different planes lifting it. And then gradually, so you can see a distinct difference, you know, in, as, it, as it, those planes intersect and then just smoothing it out. So it made such a interesting uh, understanding of how all of this works together, you know, when you're surfing. And I know you went through the same, you know, process of understanding board design through all those, those mentors, Dick Brewer and a whole bunch of others. And I'd love to hear what you have to say about that, Jerry. Well, you know, I had a, a very I guess serendipitous opportunity to meet George early on because one of my high school chums a surfing partner of mine his name was Craig Doyle his uncle was George oh. so when I was in high school I had the opportunity you know which I mean to meet George Downing was like you know meeting the Pope really? and um, he you know was of course very friendly and, and uh, cordial but, you know, I didn't get to know him until really he asked me to go in 1970 with all of us when we went to Australia for that contest. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, he had so much knowledge about things that really we never even considered. I mean, in 1970, you know, I thought I was, well, kind of a hotshot surfer or something, you know, and... Um, at one point we were down there in Australia and he, he asked all of us he goes so you guys know 
where waves come from? Out there. And he goes, no, I mean, do you know what makes waves? And we had never thought about it, any of us. You know, we mm -hmm. had that whole young crowd. It was Greg Boder, Dennis Pang, mm -hmm. James Jones. Um, right. I can't even remember who else. The the Sun Sisters, Anella and mm -hmm. Martha. And, um, you know, all of us sat there, our mouths open. We don't know. Where do they come from? So George proceeded to tell us about how storms, you know, out at sea the wind starts to blow it blows across the water and we're all sitting there you know like wow you mean they come from wind you know we had none of us had yeah. any idea any concept at all of of what produced waves and you know when i think back now when how did we get that far and not want to know that you know and so that was like really my first introduction to how much knowledge George was holding mm -hmm. and how um, freely he would share it with all of us to give us a, a better understanding of you know what it is we were trying to do I mean surfing was really I mean because we were small-minded surfing was small mm -hmm. and you know the guys like you and George, it was much bigger. And, and you know, when we saw you guys surf, we kind of understood that. Like that day you were talking about, you guys went out with no wetsuits at Bell's. You know, we all had wetsuits. And um, the water was still super cold in those wetsuits. But I don't know if you remember, but that was the only good day of surf that yes. we had the whole trip I remember yeah at Bells so true yeah. and it was really a good day and between you and George you guys got all the good waves that came in <laughs> and it was uncanny you know we'd sit there and we'd wait for him but you guys had it wired and especially George because you know he was we expected it of you but George was older, he was the coach, you know, he was the leader, but here he was getting the best waves of the day of everyone, of all the Australian guys that knew this, this was their spot, and George would, you know, get the best wave, and he'd get them from real deep, and he'd ride them, you know, all the way across, and I remember trying so hard, I never even saw one of those waves you know, when I was in a position to catch it <laughs> that day. And every time he caught a wave, it was one of those. And, and you were the same, too. You guys, you must have been sitting next to each other and <laughs> kind of sharing. Well, the, almost, I learned earlier, the guys catching the most waves, you want to follow. <laughs> I'd be right there because they can't catch every wave, so you should get, but they can't. You know? But then, you know, you, you guys are out there in just board shorts and, and uh, man... We were freezing in wetsuits. <laughs> it was really cold. Oh my God, I don't want to go back there. God. <laughs> but I want to ask you because tell me about a little bit about, you know, surfing, you know, what your, your favorite pipeline, particularly in Ala Moana. I mean, you know, in order to get, you know, way back and deep, you have to ride a different board, you know. And so surfboard design plays a very important element, especially when the waves get bigger. I mean, you can't ride the same board you ride 
in a small surf. And so, you know, through surfing, at least for me, it, it, board design morphed into, uh, you had to, as a surfer, have three boards at least, one for small waves like in Waikiki, one for like Hale even Makaha, and then you needed one when it got big Makaha, bigger Makaha, and you went down a little farther on the North Shore to Sunset Beach, you know. But how did you find yourself in terms of writing different boards and different designs for, especially, you know, in those, those waves that, again, I thank you for taking everybody down to uh, away from Sunset Beach, but, but tell me <laughs> Well, about. it wasn't that many guys, really. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in, it was in late 1967 that uh, Reno and I had chased Brewer over to Lahaina mm -hmm. to go get board shaped, and, and we had bought blanks from Fred Swartz at Surfline Hawaii. He was uh, partners with Dave Rockland and... Rockland, and right. uh, Jimmy Fluger, who, mm -hmm. um, and of course Dick Metz, who were owners of that shop, unbeknownst to us at that time. Right. But um, we bought these blanks, and so we flew over to Kahului. Reno and I hitchhiked to Lahaina, and then um, Brewer shaped Reno's board because Reno was, you know, much better surfer. And so I was waiting around, you know, waiting to get my board shaped, and. The day he said he was going to shape it, we were waiting there by the the little shop in the Lahaina Cannery, and Brewer finally showed up. And right then, this car drove up, with, piled with surfboards on the roof, and it was George Greeno, Bob McTavish, Nat Young, um, the two Witzig brothers. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was Ted Spencer and Russell Hughes. All these Australians, and they, they had a, quite a few of those wide-tailed deep V, right. McTavish boards, and so him and um, McTavish and Brewer started talking about designs, and they took the boards, and you know we're looking at them, and never seen any boards like that before, mm -hmm. and then finally the other guys wanted to go surfing, so they left, and then Brewer was all excited. And so we went to the shaping room, and you know there was my blank. It was ten feet long, and you know a, a standard board at that time. I mean, the board he made for Reno was nine six. It was this real sleek, you know, mm -hmm. drawn out kind of long board shape, and that's what I wanted too. And so um, Brewer gets a saw, and he saws about a foot off the nose, and I go, oh, wait a minute. I want to. I want a board like Reno. This is your you know? board. He's sewing. Yeah, that. he's got my blank. You know, and, and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, don't worry." And then he saws another foot off the tail. You know, and or more. And I'm going, "Wow, what are you doing?" And he goes, "I got an idea." You know, and from after talking to these guys, so the board was eight six, and he took a hot dog nose and he put it on the front and drew it out, and then he took a. Uh, a tail from one of his more gun uh -huh. type boards and he used that for the tail and I'm looking at this board none of us had ever seen a board like that before and um, so you know he had it in his mind what he wanted to shape and he put V in it and you know none of us had ever heard of V in a <laughs> surfboard before and then he was done and you know I'm going 
wow, well, this isn't really what I wanted, but I don't know. And <laughs> we took it over, and John Thurston, who used to run the, sure. the Wardy shop, yes, he had moved over there, and he was had a little glass shop, and so he put it on the rack, you know, and I could, John, what do you think? And, you know, he had those thick glasses, <laughs> and he looked at it, and he goes, interesting. <laughs> and I was going, oh, man, what kind of board is this? But it ended up being um, really the first of a whole series of boards that we ended up calling mini guns mm -hmm. because they were much shorter than uh, the regular boards. And, you know, later on, years after that, we that was like uh, the beginning of a maybe a two or three year period that we ended up calling the shortboard revolution mm -hmm. and um, in our little you know brewer group in Hawaii if it was a revolution that board that he made was uh, maybe this first shot fired and then Randy and I had an opportunity with some Kiwis that were filming the history of the shortboard around McTavish and so they came to Hawaii and they brought McTavish and Brewer and me and Randy and Jock Sutherland all together. And I retold this story, you know, and they were on the edge of their seats, both Brewer and McTavish. And I go, you know, after I finished telling the story and I go, do you guys remember that? And they both said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, oh, well, that's how I remembered it. But that was the beginning of, you know, the board designs radically changing. And it was the beginning of me starting to um, think about making my own boards, especially because Brewer got too busy yes. to make any more for me. And, um, you know, we went through that whole period, um, especially at starting to surf the pipeline, trying to figure out a board yeah. that worked better out For there sure. that, that would make surfing that you know wave that was so steep and broke so fast um, a little easier and you know just to have some success out there and we went through a lot of boards in the process but um, you know it was a, a an evolutionary process and George Downing actually figured in to um, a lot of my designs too because I'd go and ask him I'd show him what I was writing and tell him why it didn't seem to work that well out there and he'd you know give suggestions and, and advice on what to change the next time when mm -hmm. I made another one which usually was maybe in the winter time once a week because nothing lasted very long at the pipeline <laughs> you know the boards the sunset didn't seem to break as many surfboards as the pipeline did. No kidding. That wave is incredible. And you really brought it to life. So, but did that, you know, I mean, the boards got so much shorter too, though. You know, it started not only the shape, the design changed, but the length really became, you know, significant. And I think it all started in that period too. Yeah. Well, I mean, not, not like today, but, you know, the ideal pipeline board for me um, ended up to be an eight foot pintail. And what I did was I remembered Brewer using a gun tail. I took a Waimea tail, which was 
they used to um, refer to it as the nine inch tail you know that's uh-huh. was the measurement of foot up and nine inch tail on a a surfboard for you know medium-sized waves which is kind of what the pipeline usually was was unheard of but um it really worked sure did for that wave jerry you also talked about in your book mike henson had a particular contribution in that era could you talk a little bit about the downrail and how that influenced design at that time you know when the board started to go short no one knew what they were supposed to look like you know we had an idea what we wanted them to ride like but what they looked like to ride like we wanted them to was a mystery and really at that point you know because brewer and mike diffenderfer they were relying on uh team rider feedback to uh kind of you know evolve and design all their boards whereas mike hinson was actually riding his own boards and in hawaii you remember chris green sure do of course i always thought i mean randy and i have talked about this before um that at one point right as the short board was evolving that chris green was really making the very best boards simply because he was a great surfer as well and you know he was riding his own boards and so that allowed him um, a lot more insight into you know what to change what to fix how to make it better and Henson was the same way and Henson had these boards that he made here in California that had these really hard down rails from nose to tail and when we first looked at them we went oh those things look kind of weird you know they had that eagle beak nose and and uh, the really hard hard down rails and the only thing that really made them work here in California was they had a little roll in the bottom kind of like a belly and he kind of got Reno and I to ride some of these boards and we really liked them I mean because at that time you know nothing else really carried the speed that well of most of everybody else's shortboard designs including our own and so these things really went well here in Hawaii that roll kind of worked against it and then you know we were telling Brewer hey these down rails are really um, the way to go but what Henson also had was a nice natural rocker that you Mm -hmm. were talking about and the theory that that Brewer and and um, even Diff and Reno and I had was that oh you need a a real flat rocker out the tail because we want speed Mm -hmm. and with the down rails and that straight tail rocker boy those things just all they do is go straight and it wouldn't turn at all and it wasn't really until we started incorporating you know a more natural rocker which is what George Downing advocated from the beginning he goes you need more rocker he'd look at our boards he goes this thing goes straight pretty good huh (laughs) he goes how does it turn I go not that good he goes yeah you need to put rocker in the board that's right it's such a key element and that you know it was just it was such a juggle of um, different you know aspects of design to try and fit them all together to make um, 
the boards, you know, again, work how we wanted them to. And so Henson's low rail design, it was one of the linchpins in that whole metamorphosis of the boards going from long to short and then becoming functional. Yeah, it sure was. Yeah, I just wanted to talk real quickly about Ala Moana, though, because yeah. this is a very fond memories for, <laughs> to my close to my heart, you know. Special, special, <clears throat> and the people too, because there was a camaraderie that you don't you don't find often, you know. And everybody that came there came there because of the wave, yeah. and you know, you just celebrated in the parking lot, you know, over <laughs> how great it was, and it's just a naive and so friendly atmosphere to. There was no guile. I don't remember guys getting angry at each other for catching all the waves or whatever. It was just a great camaraderie, and it was a real special time in my life, you know, early life and surfing-wise, and I'm sure it was for you too. Yeah, Alamana was really um, so special. Yeah, it was such a strong, influential period of my life, and. Remember Roy Mesker? I do indeed. Mr. Hollywood, you know, yes. one of the smoothest, very smooth casual, server. goofy foots ever. His uncle um, was a pretty senior FBI agent, mm -hmm. and Uncle Ernie told us one time, he goes, hey, I'm going to give you guys a warning. This is good advice. I want you guys to listen to me. He goes, be careful of parking lots. Don't spend any time in parking lots. Everything bad goes down in parking lots. And we're sitting there listening to him, and we didn't have the heart to tell him that our whole life, <laughs> absolute, total life, revolved around this parking lot at Ala Moana. Yeah. And, you know, the people and the characters. And, and yeah, there was some bad stuff going down there, but, you know, that was our life, was that parking lot. It sure was. And oh, God. It was uh, it was very very a special time, yeah. and it still is. I go down there, you know, and this there's a different crew now. Yeah, but there's a bunch of the old guys still around, and, and uh -huh. uh, it's kind of cool. I know. I love I love paddling out at Waikiki particularly too, yeah. because it just just a flood of memory comes back into my head, you know, about all those days and the people that are not there anymore, but how special it was, and really. It real gives me a real good feeling of community. Yeah. yeah. So, Jerry, to wrap up, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. I, I came across this great quote from Nathan Myers, who directed you upon your return to Bali. And uh, I want to read it to you and, and then see what you have to say for our listeners. So Nathan says, I think Jerry is on the cusp of fully realizing and sharing with the world his great life lesson which is something about the connection of surfing and yoga, breath and meditation to all things in life, a way to peacefully, gracefully walk the path of life. Well, you know, I've been practicing yoga for 50 years now. And, you know, the reason I got into yoga was because I always thought that it was gonna help my surfing. Then the more, you know, I practiced it, I began to see it as a very parallel path to surfing and I've come to a point now in my life where I think they're actually the same path just coming at it from a different way and you know the whole idea of yoga is that there's this whole uh, universe of experience that occurs in this 
unseen realm of existence and it's constantly every moment of our lives influencing us and the yogis call it prana and the hawaiians call it mana and they're talking about exactly the same thing they're talking about this vital energy that animates all life and there were a lot of times you know at the pipeline where i got to spend a lot of time inside the tube and time felt like it was actually slowing down and things felt like they were moving in slow motion and the whole concept of that in yoga is that time and space only exist in our mind and then when we still our mind which is really the object of yoga then time and space begin to cease to exist and maybe the ancient Hawaiians had it really figured out that you know they were raising their level of consciousness by surfing and that the more I look at it the more I see that maybe they're exactly the same thing just a little different I wish I'd had that information so I could have shared it with my parents. <laughs> they might have looked at me in a different way. <laughs> they might have already known it. <laughs> Your dad, maybe. Oh, gosh, that's, that's beautiful, Jerry, and so true, too. It is, you know. I think it's the, the thing that draws all surfers or, or people to surfing, you know, and connects them with... Uh, special experiences and within nature you know and you can't really identify it but that clearly identifies exactly the state of mind that you and being that you are possess at that moment when it's all coming together yeah, beautifully stated yeah it's you know surfing um the first moment of it i think pretty much touches everyone down deep in their soul and uh that's why it's it's so compelling, you know, and, and why after that first wave, all we can think about is the next one. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Thank, Thank you, Jerry. Jerry. Wow. It's been an honor to have you here on yes, Podloha. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here. And it's very special for me to reconnect with you too, Jerry. Likewise. Mahalo. Mahalo. Mahalo.